everyone and welcome to the Information Entropy Podcast, the show where we take some confusing scientific topic and attempt to make it digestible enough for anyone to understand. Science in theory, but comedy in practice. Last week we went turtles all the way down as we searched through the simulation hypothesis. So if that takes your fancy, go check it out. But this week our heads turn to paradoxes. I guess not too different in the end of things. Uh, but if you're interested in anything that we have to say, then you can follow us on Twitter at InfoEntropyPod, Instagram, InformationEntropyPod, Spotify, iTunes. Obviously, you're listening to this somehow. So wherever you are, if you can give us a rating, a like, it helps us out absolutely massively. Um, so yeah, I'm Tom Jenks, joined as per usual by Mitchell Gatting. How are you, mate? I am also here. How's it going? Not bad. Not bad at all. Good. Oh, I should probably have turned my aircon off. Yeah. Uh, Lucky you. Yeah, it's weird how you mention it every week. So some of us. No, I'm saying I should have turned it off. Well, yeah. we're we're mid show now. Ah, if well. it's there, it's 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 there, man. Case that are. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, how's things, mate? How have you been this past week? Oh, apologies, first off, for the late show. That is completely my fault. Um, oh, yeah. I underestimated how long an Italian dinner may take. <laughs> completely mate, you've, my bad. You've lived there long enough. You should you should well know that you just add two hours on <laughs> to anything. It was more like three in the oh, end, wow, but okay. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, apologies. So yeah, we're recording on Friday... Yes. This Friday, right? It is Friday and, today. And uh, it's pretty much an hour or two before you'll, you'll hear this, if you're listening on the dot, if you're ready. Yeah. So, yeah, apologies Fresh. for the slightly late show. Totally my fault. Off. And uh, try not to do it again. Yeah. Hot as a Dunkin' Donut out of the fryer. This news. This show. The show, yeah. Have you got any news for us on, on that? Do you know what? I do have some news, and I, I went away and researched this because there was there was a few things that sort of coalesced for me to want to be like, let's go and look. The first thing, it was extremely hot uh, the past the past week, last week, um, record breakingly hot, you could say, uh, yeah. across a lot of the UK. So I was like, how much does this affect uh, the brains? Like, I felt quite. Um, demotivated but i struggled with like thinking and constructive thought while at work and i was just like i have to calm myself down can't get my work done blah 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 blah, blah. but what also happened was at the same time is um i've been going for more runs uh we made a sort of gamified running for me my family we now have a, a running league which i want to win because that's how i am um and <laughs> after the runs i bought a, a watch to sort of regulate running and to play music so i don't have to carry around a phone and it said that i was 15 percent more acclimated to the heat during my runs so it, it knows oh. the temperature and then it can be like you are 100 percent acclimated to running at like 20 degrees so it, it knows that so it takes into like the how hard have you worked this run so if you go for a run and it's really hot it goes okay obviously you're going above and beyond you're not very acclimated to this heat. Um, so my news today is that humans may not be able to handle as much heat as they originally thought. <laughs> this, this that is doesn't surprise on. me, unfortunately. Yeah. So a bunch of scientists and recent research has suggested that the heat stress tolerance in people may be lower than they originally had thought, um, which means that when the projections of how many millions of people could be at risk due to dangerous temperatures, it could ah. actually be a lower bar. So much more people are going to be affected by the temperatures due to climate change. Yeah. Um, so there's Vivek Shandus, which is, who is sort of a, a climate adaptation researcher, which is a great job at the moment. Uh, at Portland State University <laughs> is that the bodies are capable of acclimating over a period of time to temperature changes, but the we're in a time that these shifts are happening much more quickly, so we can't change or we can't acclimatize quick enough to 
the the sudden increase. Right, because like a heat wave comes in, yeah, and your body just melts. It's not like a slow build up mm-hmm. uh, throughout the year, for example. That's that's correct. Yeah. So the researchers have tracked they tracked heat stress in a like a bunch of uh, subjects ranging in age from eighteen to thirty eight under a variety of controlled. Uh, climates in the series of experiments, the team varied humidity and temperature conditions within environmental chamber. Um, sometimes holding the temperature constant while varying the humidity and vice versa. Then they then had the subjects exert themselves, like uh, doing minimal acti- outdoor activities such as walking on a treadmill, pedaling slowly on a bike with no resistance. Um, and during these experiments, which lasted one to two hours. The researchers measured that the subject's skin temperature using wireless probes and assessed their core temperature using a small telemetry pill that the subject swallowed, which I didn't realize existed, which is incredibly cool. <laughs> um, yeah. And in the warm and humid conditions, the subjects they studied were unable to tolerate the heat stress at wet bulb temperature closer to 30 or 31 degrees than the team estimates. So in hot and dry conditions, the wet bulb temperature was even lower, ranging 25 to 30. 28 and that's what they struggled with so there's like an applied uh physiology there which is humidity comes into a massive um sort of factor when dealing with this uh but overall it's it's a lot less than what they originally thought in a 2010 study the the 2010 study found that it was like 35 may still be like the upper limit but like that is the upper limit but it starts because it's like um you have a floor and then you have an upper limit the floor is like when it starts and they're saying like now 25 is the the temperature that it essentially can start and then 35 is like max you're capping out okay yeah your habituation to that climate yes essentially yeah and okay this is a study for 18 to 34 year olds so it's even more egregiously worse for even younger than that or older people yeah for sure you have to add like say like 21 degrees is like the floor for the elderly and yeah just which is madness really like that's not that no hard to reach you Uh, know well no it's 23 degrees here in in uh bristol at the moment so Okay. No, but that's when it starts to like have the effect, and then yeah. by thirty-five, he's just like brains is like, eh, eh, nope, I am <laughs> <Not> out. <anymore. laughs> yeah, yeah, that's just weird. I've always well, recently when it's been a very dry day, as in not not humid, not not raining, mm-hmm. um, I've felt better. Like yeah, I felt the day easier. I felt more active because, like you, when it's really hot here, my brain just kind of shuts down. Like I'm, people are speaking at me, and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> nothing is, uh-huh. nothing is happening uh-huh. in my head. Yeah, uh-huh. um, but when it's humid, like it was 32 degrees here the other day, but we had 87 percent humidity. Yeah, so it was like 32, but feels like 38, 39. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? Why? Why are you doing? Why is this a thing? And it was so much worse in the humidity. I I feel personally. So it's interesting that you say, yeah, or the study uh, is is contrary to that. But uh, I'm weird, so you know, it makes sense as well. Yeah, like here. Oh no, no, no. Wait, you say contrary in line. The higher the humidity, the more the more difficult it is. Oh, sorry. I understood what you had said was the higher humidity, the higher the floor. No, the lower the floor. Ah. Uh, oh, okay. I'm sorry. Mm. I completely misunderstood. Yeah, no, well, that no, makes they're sense, saying then. like with this research, the f- they found the floor is lower. Just with, uh, with everything they've done. No, right. Okay. I'm 100% with that because like we're in the UK, when it's incredibly hot, humidity is also like, yep, 100%. Just it's always like between 80 and 100 there, there is no yeah. there's never really a dry heat in the uk and if there is it's incredibly rare um which just makes it awful makes yeah, it awful it's a bit sticky <laughs> it's awful it's like you think yeah. about getting up and you you're already sweating yeah like i Nasty stuff turned my fan off in the living room and i was just sat there and my forearms just started to sweat and i was like this is ridiculous <laughs> this is a thing 
Yeah, that's nasty. Yeah. I cycle to work, so I get there and oh. I'm fine because there's like wind on you. Yeah, yeah. And then as soon as you stop, it's just, mm-hmm. uh, I just need to take a different shirt to work. <laughs> yeah, jeez. Yeah, it's fun stuff. Anyway, <laughs> enough about my, our soaking bodies. That must be great podcasting. Um, it's very interesting, though, that, that, that research. Mm. And kind of Needed. frightening. Needed research. Yeah. Yeah. Also, because I think there's a lot of, I don't want to say like research is popularism, but it, it, it kind of the main focus of research is what's popular at the time. It makes sense. Doesn't it? Like, uh, yeah. Th- there's but that, that, that's the, there is like trends in science and research, mm. but also trends in what science makes it to the mainstream media as well. Okay. But I, in, in my in my head, like this is a lot of this research is now coming about because we're seeing those those trends are now more, which you know. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's definitely an influence in that kind of a direction as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're hundred percent correct. Yeah, it is interesting to look back through some of like the scientific trends and like psychology or animal behavior, mm. and it's like in in the '60s this was really popular, and then it kind of just fell off. Not because it wasn't interesting or we'd found out everything, just the, I don't know, the trend changed. So people weren't in, as interested in that anymore. Of course, you still have some people doing it, but it's mm-hmm. not as big as it was. Yeah. I'm sure there's, so there's, I, there's other ones as well that like further um, discoveries mean that like previous uh, trends just no longer exist. Yeah, and that actually we might see very quickly Um, because I've got a piece of news that's kind of horrible. Okay. Um, But it may lead to exactly what you said, a new discovery or discovery of something is going to completely change the way this thing is researched. So I don't know if you saw this, uh, but last week we spoke about some bad science that claimed all of the plankton was dying. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, it was fine because even though one newspaper published it, it was called out pretty quickly and lots of other scientists came on board and were like, look, shut up. Right. Plot twist. It actually wasn't fine. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, So we avoided that, but... And we've seen the damage that falsifying or bad data collection can do, especially when you look at the anti-vax community and how that is still a thing for some some reason. But it is. But that came about as a, a bad publishing from, what was the paper? Oh, yeah. It was the guy that just blatantly lied. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, this... I. It won't have as many impact on the public in terms of that kind of thing. But I don't know if you've seen Science, oh, who's a very well-established paper this week, yes. reported about the falsifying of data in Alzheimer's research. Yes. I now, while this. that sounds bad, it's actually much worse than you think. Because it's not about current research and people currently falsifying data. Yeah. It goes back to 2006, so 16 years ago, where this paper came out that is the most influential piece of Alzheimer's research that has ever come out and it's basically the foundation for how we try and treat Alzheimer's basically this paper came out and said um, but it was by Sil- Sylvain Lesne and he did an experiment in older mice where he concluded that the memory deficits in the middle-aged mice are caused by the accum- accumulation of of clumps of a specific amyloid protein, or you may have heard them referred to as amyloid plaques on the brain surface. It's referred to as alpha beta uh, star 56. Or that's what I'm calling it. Maybe it's something slightly different. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, it's probably amyloid protein 56. Um, And it seemingly confirmed the rising theory in the 2000s that these toxic oligomers were the cause of Alzheimer's. Ligma? I'm like, what a... What, sorry? No. <laughs> no ligma. Oh, ligma. <laughs> um, so basically it was saying, okay, we found this kind of plaque, not like you have on your teeth, but let's say it's a buildup of protein that forms plaques on the brain 
and it causes Alzheimer's. What a breakthrough it was. Turns Lies. out... Lies. It's all, it's all day. Completely day falsified data. And, for, you know, that might explain why Alzheimer's drug treatments have a 99% failure rate. Because what we're actually treating is getting rid of the plaques, which works, but it doesn't get rid of the Alzheimer's because they're not the cause of Alzheimer's. Yeah, it's like... I look at the, the the financials of it and there's like potential to have cost like billions of in like wasted. In 2020 alone, it was over 2 billion. Yeah. Research, like just, just in the US. Wasted. Sister. And it's been going on for 16 years. Um, so yeah, since its publication, this research has become one of the most cited and invested kind of hypotheses theories i guess because everyone's kind of assumed it was correct it, it has had its critics throughout the years um and another thing that makes it worse like you you see like amyloid plaques in other species as well like i've seen research about it in dolphins and so it's like oh well maybe dolphins have alzheimer's as well is that caused by mm. contaminants in the water or do these animals have it as well so based on that one thing so many other sectors are influenced now. It's not just Alzheimer's research in particular. It's a whole slew of overlapping science here. Yeah. But basically, Matthew Schrag, he's a neuroscientist at Vanderbilt University, was recruited to investigate whether an Alzheimer's drug uh, can treat the amyloid protein because they had said uh, the research was, like, let's say, fraudulent. That led him back to the original paper in 2006 where basically he'd used images of brain scans and you can see kind of blots on the images to where these plaques are. Mm -hmm. And he was basically said, oh, these are obviously tampered to show that the problematic amyloid protein 56 is present. But it's just, it's just not true. And now they're not even sure if this protein even exists. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. And if it does exist, whether it actually influences Alzheimer's or, or not. Is it a side effect of Alzheimer's or does it cause it, you know? Yeah. It's and obviously it throws up the question, how how the fuck did we get sixteen years without anyone noticing this? Yeah. Like in software development, there's like when you have branches and the way in my mind <laughs> this should work in science in science is like if you have a research paper and it, and it cites a previous one, it should be like their connection should be made like a global repository and then right. if a previous one is bad it should then red flag red flag all the, the yeah, connected the ones that are downstream papers. like if you imagine like a tree diagram you've got like one node at the top yeah. and then it like junctures off like if, if you had that research i think it'd be really useful when things like this happen because you don't know how many papers have cited it or used it and like proper ones that have gone on to like research gate or anything like that you probably could but yeah you don't know how many people have used it I think a lot but one of the problems is with that is publishers are just assholes on another level <laughs> in the sense that if you're going through uh, Elsevier or something right you have all the connections to the Elsevier papers mm -hmm. and they're all hyperlinked and you could just click on the the name and it takes you right to the paper, but it doesn't have that for the other ones. Mm. So the deposit the repositories are very kind of split. But that would be a very good tool. It would just yeah. require some like to go back and do that now retroactively is an insane task. Yeah. Because if you, it's Unless like if you get you, some um, kind of AI to do it, maybe if you like push to a repository and it breaks it, and any anything that uses it breaks it, you, you see it in like um, if programs use a specific module uh, and that module breaks because someone's done something up the chain, everyone's just like red alert. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's it's funny. No, that's not funny. It's awful for the people that have to deal with it. But like, as someone that isn't specifically working at the moment in software development, it's great. Yeah. Well, it's a good system. Because even if it does make people freak out, at least they know there's something wrong. Mm. You mm. know? 
Yeah, um, definitely. So, yeah, essentially in one day, we've gone back 16 years in Alzheimer's research. Now, it's not to say all of this research has gone to waste, right? Like, uh, treating the plaques is obviously a good thing. They shouldn't be there. So it's just what we were trying to treat to cure Alzheimer's wasn't the thing we should have been trying to treat. And maybe we'll still find some success down that road, but uh, maybe we were just searching on an offshoot of the path rather than the actual Uh, yellow brick road we should have been on. Does that make sense? So it's not like, oh, you know, uh, it's a complete waste. It's just maybe our time would have been much better spent on a different thing mm-hmm. or searching for the actual cause rather than treat something that's more of a side effect. Um, but at the same time, this is kind of inconclusive. Even the the guy who found this out was like, I can't 100% say this is fraudulent, but it very much looks like it. And many other people have come out and said, yes, it looks like it. Yes, it looks like it. So they're, because he's found this, they're doing a further investigation. So we will find out more. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Just uh, it's just a real letdown through. I think the whole scientific community. The sometimes these things sneak through in nature. The paper was as well. You know, not like a small publishing agent. Uh, so yeah, fun stuff. You can't trust them, scientists. I've been saying I've been saying this for years. You can't trust them. Yeah, the bastards. The lips move in the line. You know that's what you know. That's what I've been saying. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Climate change. That's all we do. What? Chemtrails, <laughs> geoengineering. I always forget chemtrails was like one of these super early ones. Oh, <laughs> well, that's funny. Government all mind right. controlled by chemtrails. Well, it wasn't mind control attached to it, was there? Yeah, oh, wow. yeah. That's how that's how they got it into us. Uh, of course, they, so they controlled of our course. brains. Chemtrails. Yeah, I'm watching The Boys at the minute. Oh yeah. And uh, I'm only on episode two of season three, but the comparisons that they draw to like this world is frightening. Yeah. How just blatantly obvious they make Mm -hmm. our reality. Uh, And I'm sure there's so many people who watch it just completely miss the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's something that happens in the final episode and you're like, yep, that just sums up America. Cool. Uh Okay. (laughs) All all I've seen on it is like people are like, oh, I can't believe X person was the bad guy. And it's like, well, I know he's the bad guy from episode (laughs) one of season one. I mean, it's it's kind of painted there, obviously. The the blue eyes, the the blonde hair, I'll give it away. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Nazi? What? <laughs> what? No, not no, not him. How could that have happened? <laughs> he can't be a bad guy when he's wearing a cape of the flag. What? <laughs> Bloody hell! Right, so, back on tr- on track, shall we? Sure. Well, oh yeah, if we could, we could. Um, well, I say back on track. I just mean onto track. I feel like we've just been circling around the station. Uh, from the intro paradoxes then yeah boy <laughs> yeah boy um this may be another mind melter no nah. i mean last week we spoke a bit about obviously simulation theory mm-hmm. and it's one of those episodes that paradoxes are a lot about thought experiments in a sense we, we know mitch's this. favorite we part <laughs> of science is philosophy and thought experiments we were talking about this before um, the episode and i was having a bit of a rant about how I'm not sure. I'm not feeling 100% at the moment. A little bit ill. It's warm, and I just don't have any patience <laughs> for like for, for uh, not all thought experiments, but for like dumb ones. Like you should have seen this guy. He's like, oh wait, we can't start yet. I need to go shout at a pigeon out my window. No, nah, it was the it was the food, food delivery <laughs> truck for the the, 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 the the restaurant across the road. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> How dare That's you funny. try and restock? <laughs> This time of the day. <laughs> the bastards. <laughs> the absolute bastards. Okay. What is a paradox, Tom? Or do you want me to well, cover it? <laughs> from the dictionary, a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement or proposition, which when investigated may prove to be well-founded or true. Right. Okay. Yeah. 
See, my one, my one was a logically self-contradictory statement or a statement that runs yeah. contrary to one's expectations. And I don't like the second bit of that sentence, a statement that runs contrary to one's expectations. So a lot of things could just be paradoxes because a lot of people's expectations are wonky. So, yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a really cool experiment uh, type you can do with animals. It's called the expectation violation. Okay. And uh, it's basically like, let's say uh, I'm working with a, oh, I don't know, a monkey, right? Yeah. And when the monkey meet each other, they receive a certain smell, for example. right? Uh-huh. They can smell this this monkey and then they see it. And so they're like, oh, well, that makes sense because I can smell him. I can see him. That's obviously correct. But then if you make him, let's say, smell, have the odor of a different monkey, but he only sees the original one, he's probably going to have a different reaction because he's like, okay, well, I smell a different monkey to the one I'm seeing. So is the other one around or, you know what I mean? Like it violate their expectation of the situation and it causes different behavior. Mm -hmm. So it's a really good way to test. Um cognition in animals in certain situations okay makes sense um but yeah so exactly as you say it's very individualistic as well especially in in humans you might imagine right so claiming a paradox is just a violation of your expectation i think is wrong wrong yeah in a sense false false it's it's just False. false false yeah Indeed, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard there were three types of paradoxes. I heard that as well. Would you like to run us through those? Um, there's veridical. You're going to say that? I said that wrong, aren't you? No, nailed it, mate. Uh, which initially seems wrong, but it's proven right under proof. Is that, is that correct? I must have jumbled yes. up here. Yeah, yeah, um, I think so. That's what I, that's what I've got. An example of this is the the Monty Hall paradox. Do you know? Do you know? Do you know of the Monty Hall paradox? I do. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I always try and keep this in my mind when there's like a ah, oh, there's a few choices. You always choose and choose and choose again because you're more likely to get the wrong one. So switching doors or options is always the best option for you to statistically take as you're more likely to get the initial choice wrong. So I feel like you need a bit of setup there to explain the whole so, switching doors. So <laughs> Monty Hall, it, that was, it was a famous TV show, wasn't it? The guy that did yeah. uh, look at what you could have won. Is it Bullseye? I think it could be Bullseye. Um, it's a UK show. There's many different ones. Yeah, there's yeah. Many different ones. But essentially you had a prize behind a door and there were three doors. Well, actually, there was prizes behind all three doors. But the best prize is behind one, and you want that one. What it's essentially saying is, at your first initial choice, there's a higher probability that you're going to pick incorrectly first, because there's a two-thirds probability you're going to get it wrong. So your best bet is to choose one, and then choose again, because then you're at a higher, statistically, a higher probability of selecting the right one the next time. Ah, yeah. Yeah, it's weird because it's like, okay, pick up, you got a 33% chance of getting the car rather than like a goat, right? Yeah, that's what people think. They think it's a one third, but it's not. And then they open the other door a lot of the time and be like, okay, so do you want to stick with the one you've got or swap? And statistically, you should swap. Yeah. And the way that they, I saw this on on a TV program years ago. And essentially what they did, there was these two, uh, one was a statistician and one was a TV presenter and they put um, really long glass tables and they had three cups and they essentially put randomised it and put like a car, like a toy, um, a matchbox car, matchbox car under the cup and did it 50 times. And on the right, they said like, just pick the first one you choose and I will pick one and then switch. And weirdly, like you don't think it's going to work that well, but he like nearly doubled the amount of matchbook cars that he won by the end of it yeah it's weird it really is weird and it took me so long to get my head around it mm-hmm. how the percentages change and that that kind of thing but yeah 
It does work. And yeah, as you say, that video is there, so you can go and watch it. There's a Brooklyn Nine-Nine as well. episode as well that they have this the argument the whole time that, that it, it's not the case. Uh, okay. Yeah, it was a funny one. That's funny. My granddad was on Deal or No Deal once. Really? And uh, he- I can't remember if he switched the box or not at the end, but he won a penny. Oh, no. In the penny club, yeah. <laughs> penny club. Tragic stuff. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I can't remember if he switched the box or not. Statistically, he should have, but either way, you want a penny. Wow. Well, well, there's 20 boxes, isn't there? Like, so you always oh, that's true. You want to switch every single one. We only get to shoot, you only get to yeah. swap your box once. Don't right you, at the, the end. end. Yeah, do you want to yeah. stick with this one? Anybody that doesn't know British television from like... <laughs> the late two years ago, yeah, yeah, they're all, deal or no deal? What's that? It's essentially that? twenty boxes with numbers ranging from one p up to two hundred and fifty thousand pounds, and you choose them one by one to open them up, uh, and then you can. There's a banker. Who, there's a, this is such a stupid. <laughs> like talking this out. This is a stupid uh, setup that phones only Noel Edmonds. Um. And then gives you like a good deal for your box that you can either choose to take the deal or continue and just open your box. Yeah. So say that like a bunch of low ones have been revealed. That means there's only a high number in your box. The bank is going to give you like a bigger um, deal to to like just pay for the box. So it's, yeah, yeah. that's where the deal on the deal comes in. Tragic. Tragic. There is one that that I've seen the guy open the top four highest on his first four box openings. Oh, and no. I was like, ah! unfought. Unfought. Right. That is sad to the max. <laughs> Full sad. Uh, falsidical. Falsidical. There we go. We got there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a paradox that establishes a result that not only appears false, but actually is false due to the fallacy in the demonstration. So various invalid mathematical proofs, uh, example, uh, one equals two, are a classic example, generally relying on a hidden division by zero. So the the original um, Achilles and the tortoise uh, paradox is an example of this. Yeah. Um, And if one doesn't know, the Greek philosopher philosopher Zeno or Zeno of Adia came up with the Achilles and the tortoise which later then the tortoise and the hare was derived from this paradox if you didn't know um, oh. it's essentially saying to keep things fair uh, the Achilles agrees to give the tortoise a head start of 50 metres when the race begins Achilles surprisingly starts running at a speed much faster than the tortoise so that by the time he reached 50 metres uh, the tortoise had only walked 50 metres further of him. But by the time that Achilles had reached the 550 mark, the tortoise had walked another f- 5 metres. And by the time he'd reached the 555 metre mark, the tortoise had walked another 0.5, then 0.25, then 0.125, and so on. And this process continues again and again over an infinite series yeah. of small, small distances. And it's saying, how long would it take Achilles to catch up? And the exact the answer is um, infinite you'll never yeah. reach him because you're always dividing by a half so that's that's what the falsidical paradox means yes all right teaching people about convergent series gotta hate those siri <laughs> siri <laughs> series hello siri siri hello uh, and the last one is the Antinomy. You're going to say that? Yes. Which is things like the grandfather paradox, that they can't be true or false. So, like, uh, this um, this statement is false. Is, yeah. Is a, this is kind of like well, the traditional paradox, let's say. Yeah, that people... people when when I think of one, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you go. What is the grandfather paradox, Tom? Oh, that's a fun one. Um, is it? Have you seen <laughs> Back to the Future? <laughs> oh wait! If you haven't seen season three, then 
Anyway. Of what? Of, of what series? So I know the reference. Uh, Umbrella Academy. I have seen season three. Yeah. I was going to say, oh, if you've seen season three, you'll know. But then... Because they have a great explanation of it in that show. Oh, they but do. Then, uh, if people haven't uh, seen it, well, then... they use that exp- they use that explanation because that explanation. Oh, I can't is... remember that. Oh, <laughs> I was going to point people to it, uh, but yeah, we're here. The grandfather paradox is basically, um, let's say I travel back in time and I kill my grandfather. Therefore, one of my parents is never born. Therefore, I'm never born. Which means I can't actually go back and kill my grandfather, which means then my parents are born and then I am born, but then I'm there to go, you know, like it just starts a complete loop over and over. Yeah, that, and that's essentially... It's basically yeah. a consistency paradox. Yeah. And these occur whenever changing the past is possible. But there's obviously there a contradiction there or whether or not the time traveller or any other event altered by time travel actually exists. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. This is, which I was saying, like I was getting, and not annoyed, but like (laughs) hypotheticals involving time travel, just, I'm just like, not the one. No, not the one for me today because it's like, yeah, these hypotheticals are all great and all, and they're all great types of paradoxes, but it's like, there's the assumption that time travel is a thing. And it exists, or it will exist, or it's going to exist. Just like, meh. Yeah. And, and we don't know if it will, for sure. <clears throat> Sorry. Well, we, or we, even we, we what do. the effect would be. We can travel into the... We know that it's possible to travel into the future. Yes. Like, that is something that we will be able to do when we have the technology to, like, sit and preserve a human body by a... Um, a celestial body with a large, uh, a large enough gravity. Well, yeah. So essentially, sure. and then being able to get out of said gravity. Well, um, we'll be able to travel technically, travel into the future because of gravity time dilations, and we'll come back into the present, and time would have skipped a lot further. If you have watched the latest Buzz Year movie, uh, no, I haven't. It, it is comes, that out? It, it, yeah, it's out. It's out on a uh, Disney Plus. I'm pretty sure you can go. You can go watch it at the moment. It covers gravitational time dilation uh, very well in a sad Disney kind of way. <laughs> oh, classic, <laughs> classic Disney. Uh, but it's very up good. all over again, isn't it? A uh, little bit, little bit. Yeah, um, sad times. Sad times. Uh, I haven't seen it fully yet, so I'm planning to watch it this watching it this evening. But yeah, if we had that ability. We can have time okay. travel, but this like yes. If I go back, because that's in the the um, the example they use in the Umbrella Academy is a child is uh, abused by his father so egregiously that he goes and invents a time machine that he then uses to go back in time to then shoot his granddad even though that's like i don't know why he wouldn't just so shoot his the father, father never exists so basically. yes his father doesn't exist but then like how does it he then get beaten to then invent how does time then resolve itself i think yeah is the paradox in that situation the, the better one and... that i prefer is one the one they use in uh peter cabaldi's doctor who of the time traveling musician I don't think I know that one. Okay, so a time traveller... Well, he's not a time traveller to start off with. There is a person that really enjoys a um, an artist, a composer from like the 1700s, say it's like Bach or someone. I know that's the time range is not right, but say it's Bach. Uh, so much so then like they learn all of his music, they can write out, they love it. So much so, and they dedicate their lives so much that they, they invented time machines so they can go back to that era and listen to him live. It goes back to the era um, and that person doesn't exist. Uh, so the, that time traveler then writes the music, produces everything, puts it into the timeline but then it's the argument is how was that music invented and where did it come from? 
Yeah, so this is different to the grandfather paradox. This is, is the bootstrap paradox. It is the bootstrap paradox, and it when it's it's a better time travel paradox. It's a better it's, paradox because, for you. It's a yeah. better paradox because it's it, it asks more questions. Like in that situation, the where did what happened? Because it's not like a, a fixed time loop, like the um, the grandfather one is. It's like a question of the origin of something. Yeah, it's basically it's. It causes a causal loop, right, where the origin of something or someone or some particle, right, is lost. Yes. And Even though, because you could join the story in, at the beginning, right, with Buck, like, making the music. Because if you joined the story after he arrived back in time, that was that would be your origin from your perception, right? Yeah, yeah. But then if you join the story where you, where you started it, he's in the future listening to Buck and then goes back in time. That's the origin of our story, of our idea of the story. Mm-hmm. But then when you connect the two, it's like, okay, well, where does actually this begin? Yeah, he went who, back in time. Who wrote it? Because exactly. the time traveler didn't write the music. He listened to it and then wrote it down. But is that like yeah. a, a fixed point in time event that like had to happen? So <laughs> it's one of yeah. those things. Which is is really interesting to think about. Um, And it kind of relates to... Because people try and solve these paradoxes a lot, which I find find very interesting. And it kind of relates back to like free will and all of these kinds of things. And if, say, the bootstrap paradox is real, right? It means that the past event has to happen for the current event like it's already happened right this person has already gone back in time 400 years ago and created the music so back exists in the world which means that person has to go back but in that in that situation back doesn't exist in the world back is just a uh a false id that the time traveler used in that situation yeah i get it but the music exists right no, and someone yeah. under the alias of Back, which is the time traveler, created that music. Yeah, but that music had to exist, and the idea that Back existed had to exist, right? Because it did exist, which means that person was forced through, let's say, the will of the universe. Yeah, that's in, what I mean, like, uh, a, to go event. back in time. Like yeah. he doesn't actually. Does he have the free will to go back in time, Ooh. or was he destined to do it? see what you mean when the free will because the music existed and he listened to it and then he went back in time like that music had to come from him in the end so like he's a person who is stuck in this yeah he trapped his own free will if that makes sense I don't think it's I think the person causes the trap the entrapment of the free will not the whole like the idea of free will just then doesn't seem like exist in that situation I think that person because it's the choices, the free will choices of that person have caused it. They right. made the choice to go back in time to then, yeah. and then kick this all off. So I don't yeah. think it, it does break the, the illusion of free, joy, of free will. Okay. Um, so I've got an interesting paradox here, the, the Newcomb's paradox. Have you heard of this? No, I have not. And it's very interesting because it relates to so many kind of other ways of thinking about paradoxes. And the funny thing is, there's kind of two ways to think about it. And the the way people are split among philosophers, scientists, and kind of everyone is, is nearly 50-50, with the other side thinking the other one is kind of silly. Um, so a bit background first. The Newcomb's paradox is a thought experiment showing an apparent contradiction between the expected utility principle and the strategic dominance principle. So the expected utility hypothesis is a popular concept in economics that basically serves as a reference guide for decisions of when the payoff is uncertain. uh, uncertain. Like, should I choose this rational option over this one in a complex situation? It's a way to break it down for yourself. Mm -hmm. And the strategic dominance principle actually comes from game theory, which is like, if you have a better... uh, strategy you're basically just going to dominate the the other person 
that's the simplest way to think about it. If I have a better way of playing than you, uh, it comes down to strategic dominance. So the problem is there is a reliable predictor, another player, and two boxes designated A and B. The player is given a choice between taking only box B or taking both boxes A and B. And the player knows the following things. Box A is transparent and always contains a visible $1,000. Box B is opaque and its content has already been set by the predictor. If the predictor has predicted that the player will take both boxes, then box B contains nothing. If the predictor has predicted that the player will only take box B, then box B contains $1 million. And obviously the player does not know what the predictor has predicted or box or what box B contains whilst making the choice. So it's like, which box should the player choose? But the predictor has like a 99% chance of predicting his choice correctly, right? So he could take A and B, and if the predictor is predicted that, he only gets a thousand. If the predictor predicts A and B and he only takes box B, he gets nothing. If the predictor predicts box B and he takes both, then he gets $1,000,000. Or if the predictor predicts he's going to take box B and he takes box B, he only gets, well, only, he gets a million. So basically there's two way strategies for the game and this is what people are divided on. Considering the expected utility when the probability of the predictor being right is almost certain, as I said, 99% this kind of, let's say, robot is going to predict what you pick 99% of the time correctly, all right? The player should choose box B because if he gets it right and you pick that box, then you get a million dollars. This statistically maximizes your way of winning, right? And getting 1 million per turn. But that's under the expected utility principle. Under the dominance principle, the player should choose the strategy that is always better, which is choosing both boxes. Because that will always yield 1,000 more than only choosing box B. However, the expected utility of always 1,000 more than B depends on the payout of the game. And when the predictor is 99% of the time choosing yourself correctly, then you're more likely to take nothing away. Now, did I melt your brain or did that make any sense? Kind of, but I'm looking at a decision tree here that's based off of this. So I've got a visual. Ah, okay. <laughs> I, have, I have visual aids. Um, Perfect. Yeah, so... Okay. Right, I'm trying to work out, because if you picked A and B, you get 1 million and 100. Well, 1,000, don't you? You get 1 million, 1,000, but only if... Um, if you pick A and B, and the predictor predicted you would do that, then you only get 1,000. Well, I'm just if you flip the table and just take A... You just take it. You can't. That's not one of your choices. You can't just take A. That's a bit bullshit, isn't it? Yeah. So there's a robot making a guess of what you're going to do, and 99% of the time it's correct. You can take only B, or you can take both boxes. Well, if that's the case, it's 99, I'd always just take B. Yeah, but this is where it's like con uh, conflicted, I suppose. Because if you choose A and B and you're going through the dominance principle, then you'll always get 1,000 more than just B alone. It it matters how many times you're allowed to play, I suppose. Yeah, it does. Because if you have 100 attempts, then... 
Oh, I see what you mean. Because if you have 100 turns because it's 99, then it's better just to... Oh, interesting. Yeah. And what's interesting, this is related to kind of simulation, which we, we, we touched on that last week and the, the question of machine consciousness. Because if you were able to perfectly simulate a person's brain, which you imagine this robot would do, right, to try and understand what they're going to choose. No. No? I would not assume that. <laughs> okay. You don't use a human brain to work out what a human brain is going to do. You no. use a higher level of logic to be able to determine all the factors that a human brain wouldn't be able to take into effect. Right. Because if you use a human... More psychology. If you, if you use a human brain to determine a human brain, there's like, we are limited in what we can take in. Like, if you used a higher level of, of intelligence to to analyze the human brain, you could be like, okay, well, they're going to take into all the different various variables that like the person's life, the the humidity of the day affecting their, their cognitive powers, like all those things that a human wouldn't be able to take into effect. Right. But if you were literally the same conscious being making the decision, it simulated you perfectly, your consciousness perfectly then wouldn't that be the more accurate way to do it? Well, it depends what you... Because this is it's trying to predict what you're going to do. So yeah, to predict more accurately, no. Okay. Because you can then be like, oh, chaos theory, this person's going to just do whatever and not actually do anything. That's got <laughs> to do with any sort of statistical breakdown. Yeah. I don't know why you wouldn't just go for B every time, but that's me kind of... Yeah, because that, the whole idea of like 99% uh, least, chance, yeah, like, yeah, you could you could hit it on the 50th or the 40th. It doesn't mean like statistically it's going to be like, the, it's like, what's it? Not gambler's fallacy. Yeah, but if, if it predicts you're going to pick B and you pick B, you still get a million. I thought it didn't. That's what I'm looking at in my... Uh, wikipedia spreadsheet i've got here if the predictor has predicted the player will take both boxes then b contains nothing right if the predictor has predicted the player will only take box b and you do now oh, i see so basically the robot is going to predict what you do right yeah the robot predicts that you're going to take both boxes so in that case, there's a maximum of a thousand only in box A. If the predictor thinks you're only going to take box B, then box B has a million in it. So if the predictor has predicted you're only going to take box B, but you take both of them, then you get a million and one thousand. You could take both of them, but the predictor thought you were only going to take you're going to take both boxes. Then yeah. B has nothing in it, so you could get absolutely you could get absolutely nothing if it predicts you're going to take A and B, but you only take B, then you get zero money. Yeah, so it's always best to just choose B. Yeah, and hope that it also predicts that as well. Well, no, because if if it predicts A and B, you get more. So it doesn't matter. Always predict B. But you're not predicting, you're choosing. There's a robot there predicting what you're going to pick. I see what you mean. Yeah, it's the wrong way around. I don't know why I didn't do actual choices and predict choice. Okay. If that's So the, the robot predicts something and then that makes, that determines how much money is in the boxes. So what it's actually saying is it's always better to choose A and B because you're, you're actually gaining something. Independent yes. of what the, the predicted choice is. You will exactly. always gain some sort of financial reward exactly. for picking. If you a pick and B. A and B every single time, you're at least going to get a thousand. Yeah. And in the time where it predicts you're going to pick B, but you still take A and B, you're getting a thousand no, more no. than a million. Yeah, so you get a million so as well. Each time you take both boxes, you're getting one thousand more than B alone. Yeah, but isn't that right. like you can just do it? In an infinite amount of times. Like, if you were to do it once, what would you pick? 
be because I, th- I think once you've got a million, a thousand doesn't make that much difference. And I'm hoping that the machine also thinks that I think that. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would be my way to play at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, anyway, a lot of people have related this to trying to simulate consciousness. And suppose we take the predictor to be a machine that arrives at its prediction by simulating the brain of the chooser when confronted confronted with the problem. If that simulation generates the consciousness of the chooser, then the chooser cannot tell whether they are standing in front of the boxes in the real world or in the virtual world generated by the simulation in the past. So it's like this robot has simulated you being in that situation before you've done it to try and see what you're going to pick. So how do you know you're in the real world and not in the simulation of this virtual? Fucking, I, I'm so I'm so <laughs> done with these hypothetical bullshit things. <laughs> but how would you know? Like you'd know. <gasps> Maybe we're all just in a Newcomb's paradox, and everything is leading up to one person betting something. <gasps> wow! Imagine how gutted you'd be. It's like in Rick and Morty. You just suddenly wake up after you lose a bet. <laughs> Yeah. So basically what we're saying, guys, is if you get to a point where a robot's going to predict what box you have to choose, walk away. No, (laughs) what you do is you flip a coin. Oh. It's it's one of those things where you just make the decision, but not based on your own uh, consciousness. No, I just pick B every time. (laughs) No, no. Easy mill. Because, okay, you just go, oh, I know what I do. I pick B. So I'm not. That causes a paradox. Well, no, because if I cause the predictor to predict B, and then the real me picks B, at least the real me got a million. No, but then, the, no, you couldn't do that though, because if if you're saying it's an, an exact mirror of your consciousness, the mirror is going to go, oh, actually, no, what I would do was. I would think that I'm going to pick B, but actually I'm going to pick A, B because I'm going to try and trick myself. So you see how you've got that, like, it's doing like rock, paper, scissors. So you're like, teaming up with yourself. You have to trust your simulate, your <laughs> no, real self. You're gaming yourself because you don't want <laughs> yeah. oh, playing you. 4D chess with yourself. Yeah, that's actually what it's going to be. That's why you do the flip of the coin because then it's not to do with your, your thought process. You just go, okay, A, B, heads, B, tails. Sweet. Fair. That's one way to solve it for sure. Yeah, stupid hypothetical, dumb Stupid hypotheticals. We're never going to do this again. Bloody paradoxes. Newcomb's paradox solved. Get that next one. Come on, next one. Theseus is shit. You're listening at home. Give us your favourite paradox (laughs) and we will solve it live on air, even if it takes us an hour. (laughs) It will be solved. How do you feel about the the old um, is it Theseus, Thaddeus's ship? Theseus's ship. Yeah, yeah this it- is the one for people who don't know. Where if I have a ship and one of the planks gets like a bit rotten, I need to replace it, and this keeps on happening to the point where eventually I've replaced every single piece of wood in the ship, and I can build the same ship out of the old pieces. Which one is Theseus's ship? No, that's oh, um, that's not the thingy, is it? Yeah. I didn't realise there was two ships. I, I thought it was just, is the, it, it, is the, ship, think the that, original ship? Yeah, but the, people extend it sometimes to be like, oh, okay. okay, I've also made a ship out of all the original pieces. Which one is like the true original? Okay, I hadn't heard the, the extended. Oh, okay. I don't, just the, um, is and people the are split. Ship? Okay. That, yeah, okay, well, I guess this takes it a bit further then. It's like, which one is the original? You know, yeah. Um, it's a bit metaphysical because it's it's like, is the the concept, the idea, the and the shape, and the design of the ship, is that does does that hold the title of the ship of Theseus, or is the physical build, like the object in the world, the ship of is ship is the ship of Theseus? Yeah, and some people are like, oh, well, it's the old materials right are the ship and the new one is like a copy 
Yeah. But I, I, I kind of think like they're both the original, just at different stages. They, you know, they overlapped the materials in the same place, let's say. Um, it's very difficult to come up with a solid reasoning either way, I think. But I would say they're both the original just for like different reasons. And obviously we live in a culture now where everything is mass replicated, right? Back then when this came out, (laughs) each ship had its own specific design, you know, it was a bit more relevant in that sense. Whereas now uh, everything kind of can be replicated very easily. Uh, What do you think? Um, I'm I'm very much of like that it's still the same it is still the ship of theseus because it's yeah it's it's less because to do with like his 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 journey um but it's it's more for me the design and that gets more into like patentism where right like if you build something based on a patent the, the patent holds the name not the actual thing yeah so if you destroyed it and made another one that was exactly the same as the patent using different materials it's still the patent so yeah that comes into it but i I, it's like if you use a a spade or a hammer and you replace the head and then you have to replace the handle are you using a completely new hammer it's trigger isn't it that is and it's like in that sense uh, it's a bit more easy to say yes but at the same time it's weird because because he says trigger says in that episode he says i've been using the same uh Brush or broom, I can't remember what the actual word is. That's it, broom. I've, I've yeah. been using the same broom for 20 years. And someone was like, wow, that's a great broom. He's like, oh, you know, every now and then I have to replace the brussels or the, the broom head or the handle. And they look at him like, what? It's not the same broom. But like, it's a quite a very, yeah. very intelligent gag, to be honest. <laughs> for the Vicar yeah, Dibley. Vicar Dibley was great. Um, he had some good, great lines in there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I think I agree with you. I think like it is the same ship because the idea and the use of the ship hasn't stopped because the parts weren't Ooh, all changed at once. Okay. Like I said, I mean? um, oh, not Platonism, but Platocratic theory with like the object's, uh, purpose is like, it's still the same. Yeah. But like. Imagine we made a Titanic now Just a big using ship. the salvaged material from the Titanic. Yeah. We wouldn't say that's the same ship. That's a replica, maybe. Because it's an homage to the original. The purpose isn't the same. Yeah. Ah, uh, so yes, yeah, so that's what I mean. So it's it's more yeah. the Okay. So it's not the design. So if you but it's were building a new the... ship. Yeah, yeah out of the old parts yeah then i'd say they're both are but they've got different ideas behind them that one's still in use and that one we're going to stick up on the shore to be like oh look he's out there in this this ship you know <laughs> yeah but there's only one titanic you, you, you there can, is only one titanic, you can call it titanic yeah. but it's not it would be it's not a rebuilt reconsidered exactly salvaged titanic but it's not the exactly same. it wouldn't it wouldn't have the same idea um, but I struggle to say why I think that I can't put that into words <laughs> alright well we're over the hour so I guess we'll, we'll leave you with that headache and uh, if you've got any thoughts on the ship of Theseus let us know have you got anything else you would like to speak about mate um you have a you know, we always get to the end. I was going to be like, we've already talked about the, the biggest and best paradox, which is the Fermi paradox, but we've already spoken about that on a previous podcast. We so have. if you want to, it's to do with the existence of existence of extraterrestrial civilizations somewhere else in the galaxy. Uh, and it's a great paradox because it, you know, it's not just hypothetical. It's not just hypothetical. <laughs> uh, it's, There's some real contingency there. Yeah. Um, it is a step paradox. If you don't like step paradox with there's assumptions, I understand people not liking the assumptions paradox because there's sometimes like gambler's fallacy in there. Yeah. Because in, in that paradox, there is a hundred percent gambler's fallacy. You're like, Oh, there, cause there's, there's so many, there has to be at least one. It's like, no, 
there doesn't um but you know the probabilities are so incredibly low so is what it is yeah exactly that's my last type of hating on wicked yeah go check that out that was uh, episode two was it three you think i'm counting oh yeah the great filter uh yeah it was the great filter so, episode, episode well technically our, our first proper episode not just our the yeah. intro episode to us so go have a look back at the great filter indeed wicked stuff then so that will bring us to a wrap. Don't forget to share this with your friends, families, co-workers, scientists, fellow philosophers, Theseus, if you find him, or a ship. Uh, if you want more information, fun science, you can find us on Twitter, at InfoEntropyPod, Instagram, InformationEntropyPod, Spotify, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, is it now? Um, wherever you are listening to this, really, spread the love. Give us a rating if you can. And uh, yeah, any last words from you, mate? Yes. Oh, damn it. I should have said no. That would have been a great end. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. You played yourself. Played myself. Four dimensional test myself, though. All right. Well, if only we could have predicted that. Yeah. Right. We'll shut up. We'll catch you guys (laughs) next week. Hopefully, a bit more on time. Apologies once again. Peace. Peace out. Peace.